let me give you guys a quick little jump on why we're talking about this. In our Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind this week, one of our board members, Paul Ravella, had asked to do something on hormones because he said, you know, as a guy who works with hundreds and hundreds of clients through himself personally and his coaches, and he's got his finger on the pulse of social media constantly, he said, everybody's fascinated with hormones. That's all they want to talk about. They blame or praise every single thing on hormones, yet nobody understands anything about it. So uh, I thought... That's a, that's a big topic. That's going to be tough to cover in one session. So I, I tried to break it down as concretely as I could by function. Hormones are chemical messengers in our body that kind of drive everything. So when you look at the human body or any organism, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, as, as just an organic machine, everything is driven by electrical and chemical signals. And uh, hormones are those mediators often between tissues and glands, uh, often stimulated by certain psychological contexts like, like, oh my gosh, you know, something, you know, loud, you know, boom happened and you jump, you know, that, that kind of adrenaline, you know, is there for a reason. And so, you know, the, the electrical and chemical combinations that, that just happen back and forth are, are really nonstop. It, it's kind of what drives our entire existence. So when we turn toward nutrition and fitness and the goals to gain lean body mass and lose body fat, there are a certain set of hormones that are very, very primary for that. And I, we, we also did a series this week in Contest Prep University where I tried to refine it even a little bit more. And the Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind is usually about a 60 to 75 minute long form discussion between a couple of experts with all of our coaches who are members listening in. Uh, the uh, Contest Prep University series is usually five to seven minute short videos, and we'll, we'll take a topic and break it down into those more digestible chunks. So here we are today taking a third swipe at this, where I can put things together a little bit more easily because this is more of a lecture format. So I can put things in a PowerPoint, make it a little bit more visually understandable, I hope. And, and put some, some standardized concrete information out there. So this is going to be a little bit more narrow focused toward actual fat loss. And so one of the main studies that I wanted to use is, is one that looks at hypothyroidism and obesity, because the first thing that we all think about, and my clients included, as soon as they hit a sticking point, they're not losing very much. Everybody says, oh, it's got to be my thyroid. You know, I've, I've killed my thyroid gland. Thyroid's not working. I need, I need drugs. And so let's look a little bit at the function of thyroid. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read just some direct quotes from, from this study. Overt hypothyroidism is associated with modest weight gain, but there's a lack of clarity regarding subclinical hypothyroidism. So here's a difference. I, I think when you're talking about levothyroxine or synthroid, there's, there's kind of an upper level dose where if, if, you're, if your thyroid stimulating hormone is so high, meaning that your body is just hammering and hammering and hammering away at that signal, but your body just doesn't respond to the T3 and T4 that's there, then you know that's the indicator that you need perhaps to be medicated. So typically over time, if you're going to have a problem, it's a very slow thing. So I remember whatever metric is used, my TSH was always subclinical. It was always just right at that edge. And then they, the, the medical community, endocrinologist driven, of course, you know, kept moving that up. So I, I was at, you know, 2.53, 3.54. I finally reached that final goalpost of five. And my doctor's like, yeah, we definitely need to get you on some levothyroxine. So I go, oh my gosh, it's going to be great. I'm going to, I'm going to take this and I'm just going to be shredded. Like I'm going to be able to eat all I want. And I'm and this body fat's going to melt off me because I finally get a thyroid med. So we go on 25 micrograms and ironically, like the very first couple of days, like my palms were warmer. I, my, my, I've never even felt what it's like to have sweaty palms. And like, I would like, I just felt warmer. So I'm like, God, this is even my throat was just a little sore. So I knew it was impacting my thyroid gland and yet nothing happened. My body composition didn't change. I didn't notice I was hungrier, less hungry, anything. So fast forward another year. And what that dose had done was stop that slow climb. And so I was kind of hovering there. So she put me on 50 
And I'm like, oh, here, here we go again. Like, this is it. This is the dose. I'm going to lose a bunch of weight. It's going to be easy. Can eat anything I want. Again, nothing happened. Weight didn't change. Nothing at all, even though that level is coming back down. So that's, that's to this first point that kind of a subclinical low hypothyroidism that may even be associated with reduced body fat, calorie deficit, it's just not going to have that much of an impact. Somebody who has, you know, like no thyroid gland, it's been destroyed either surgically or through a virus, you know, maybe, you know, that's where they say there could be some modest weight gain, but it's definitely not the cause of obesity. Um, when you hear people in the bodybuilding community who we've seen what six or seven people die, one particular coach just keeps killing clients left and right. And, uh, you know, weirdly, no, no attorney general of the state or prosecutors even caring about those things. Um, but anyway, a lot of it is because they will, they will give them super, super, super high doses of clenbuterol and T3. And, and they're, they're trying to induce extra body fat loss by completely maxing out and frying their thyroid system, as well as even, you know, just cardiac. I mean, when, when you take some, take a high dose of T3, clenbuterol, things like that, you could just be sitting at rest and your heart rate's like 150. So doing all kinds of trauma, just trying to get this uh, impact, that's just not even a primary driver of body fat loss. So uh, here's, here's what was really interesting. This surprised me. I don't know if this will kind of register with your knowledge of, of these particular compounds, but high leptin levels may play a role in hyperthyrotropinemia. I said that wrong, but of obesity and may also uh, increase susceptibility to thyroid autoimmunity and subsequent hypothyroidism. Uh, what, what they found is that it's actually obesity that causes hypothyroidism, not the other way around. And uh, that, that makes a lot of sense when you follow those chemical pathways, that when you have such an abundance of constant food intake, your body's actually trying to slow that whole system down. So we always think, oh, somebody who's overweight, it's probably because they were hypothyroid. No, it's because they're, they're hypothyroid because they've, they've overeaten themselves into that space. So um, one of the things, I think I actually brought this up. Okay, yeah, I did. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna jump back up here and at least mention this other study. So, and, and then I, I wanna talk, continue about thyroid for just a second. We covered this particular study in a previous uh, research review. Do adaptive changes in metabolic rate favor weight regain in weight-reduced individuals and examination of set point theory. So just looking at the set point phenomena, this was one particular review that highlighted this study. You guys will probably remember this because this was a cornerstone of one of the research reviews we went over in discussing metabolic set points. But in a, in a study, uh, 24 postmenopausal women I think earlier this week, I said it was 44. So my, my bad on that. There's my, my retraction and correction. But uh, with, a, with a BMI approaching 30, uh, they wanted to get all of these women down, I believe it was under 25, yep, under 25. And they, they had an interesting design to this study in that instead of saying, well, this is a six-week study or a 12-week study, we're going to do this and see what happens. They said, we want you all to go from where you are to under 25 BMI, don't care how long it takes, we're going to bring you all in for a 10-day inpatient process starting point where we can do uh, metabolic CART testing. We're going to make sure that everybody's on the exact same calorie deficit. So no matter what your metabolism is, we're in the same deficit range, could do entire blood panel work. Uh, and then we're going to let everybody go with their particular diets, bring you back in for another 10-day stint to kind of calibrate everything at certain intervals, then another 10-day stint like that. And then finally, when you reach the end, you're in there for another 10 days. And so it, it, as great of a combination of inpatient and, and self-reporting studies, I think you can get. And one of the things, this, this is not the only thing they were looking at, but just one of the anecdotes that came out is that within the first 10 days uh, of being in a calorie deficit, their thyroid output dropped uh, by 6%, 
which was exactly correlated to a 6% drop in their resting or their resting metabolic rate. So what dropped their, their resting metabolic rate, their BMR, um, was exactly correlated to that initial, initial shift in thyroid, but it never went lower. And this was, I, I think only, this was not even an average. This was like almost like 23 of the 24 women. That was the exact number. And then every time they were checked, 6%, 6%, 6%, then they get to the end and they reverse them up to a maintenance level of food. So I think it was just kind of one fell swoop. You know, here was your 500 or so calorie deficit. Uh, every woman took between three to five months to get there. They lost an average of, of 40 to 44 pounds. So substantial length of diet, uh, you know, weight loss. And yet just in 10 days of returning back to a normal level of food intake, their, their RMR in their thyroid hormone came right back up 6%. So this, this should give you a lot of confidence in the resilience of our metabolic capacity and how even a long-term diet losing 44 pounds does not, quote, damage or suppress your metabolism too far at all. Certainly very, very re recoverable. So I think we just need to take thyroid off the table with weight loss. It's, it's there. It's a factor. It's part of that initial drop, but we can't blame it for body fat gain or lack of body fat loss. Um, I will say, you know, that's, that's kind of a bell curve statement. So somebody who has always been subclinical hypothyroid as me, that's just part of the chemical makeup that makes me more of an endomorph. That's why I'm not an ectomorph. That's why when I start losing body fat, it's always going to be a little bit slower than some people. Again, everything on a continuum on that bell curve, a subclinical hypothyroid guy like me, even eventually medicated, you know, this late in life, you know, that shows that it just completely correlates to somebody who we would just consider a slow metabolic person, but not somebody who couldn't lose weight at all. All right, so let's let's move on a little bit. Um, interaction of metabolic hormones. This is a pretty good um, meta-analysis. Really comparing, uh, you know, is is diet alone enough, or is exercise alone enough? If we compare diet to exercise. Like one group just exercises, but they keep their food intake the same. Another group diets, but they don't exercise or doing both of those things combined. Obviously, that seems to be like that's where you're going to get your most impact. But they, they did a really good study with this. Um, I called it a meta-analysis. It may have been just a study. Let me let me get into this and I'll, I'll see if I need to correct that. Um, but this is another one that we talked about uh, in a previous research review. And I'm going to read these things here because... This is going to be where you get the greatest take-home information, something really tangible for weight loss. Physiological and psychological systems work together to determine energy intake and output and thus maintain adipose tissue. So kind of a duh statement, that's physiology 101. The, the physiological and psychological systems, including thyroid, adrenaline, all these things, exercise, food intake, you know, they say energy intake and output, that's how we maintain body fat. That it should not be a shocking statement to anybody. Exercise is one of the major links between the hormonal modulators of energy intake and output. It appears that the sympathetic nervous system and the catecholamines are key components facilitating lipolytic activity during exercise. So this, this is part of their conclusion uh, when, when they, they look at all of the data and they found that exercise and you know the sympathetic nervous system is, is what's engaged when we're actually working out and we're active. Um, but the catecholamine hormones are, are primarily the ones um, produced by the adrenal glands. So you're looking at norepinephrine, epinephrine, uh, even cortisol. Uh, so keep that in mind. And although the physiological role of the endocrine system during exercise and training is significant, other training effects may have as great or greater influence on lipolytic activity in adipose tissue. So, so once again, you know, they're, they're saying everybody wants to point to hormones, the endocrine system, and, and primarily kind of how that's controlled through nutrition, but it could be that training and exercise has an even greater influence. 
And, and I think that's a pretty subtle statement when you see some of the actual results that I'll, I'll go over. So uh, if you remember in another uh, study that we covered this year, I mentioned that when you look at total energy expenditure, if we had a nice little bar graph, you would see that that basal metabolic rate, like even if you just laid on the floor for 24 hours and didn't move, the amount of energy that you're going through just to sustain life, you know, that's, I don't even know if it's 75%, somewhere 60 to 75% of the calories that we'll use in any given day. Then you have the NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is the next nice little chunk. And that's just moving around. You know, here I am standing, waving my arms, talking to you guys. That's non-exercise activity. Then you have the exercise-induced activity. And, and that's, that's the smallest margin, but it can be significant. It, I mean, how much are we truly going to change our basal metabolic rate? That's what thyroid hormone would do if we could. Clearly, there can be a little impact, you know, quote, 6%, but not a ton. Neat, certainly. You know, I could be sitting at a desk here and, and never move and just talk like this. And that would change my non-exercise activity. But man, we don't spend a lot of time talking about how many calories we actually burn when we are training, because that's only half hour a day, hour a day, five, six days a week. And you know, obviously there's a bump in energy use there, but we don't consider how wide that can be. So that, that's what I'm going to talk about next here with this section on catecholamines. Uh, human growth hormone also play, plays a role. Uh, that's, I'm not sure if they classify that as a catecholamine. I, I don't think it's an androgen. It's not, it's not, it has effects like testosterone, but it's kind of in a, in a category all its own. Um, we talked about thyroid, then glucagon and insulin, which we know, um, you know, is a, is a very big factor in the dietary shift. And that has some impact, but their, their research says it's not, it's pretty minor. Like when you look at it, it's actually kind of minor compared to what we can do with, with exercise. And if you're going to look at diet versus exercise, their conclusions are, you'd probably want to pick exercise if you can only pick one. And uh, as long as your diet was the same, we're talking about, uh, you know, an equal comparison. But one of the things we're going to mention last, because even though a lot of people think it's a really cool, big thing, things like testosterone, those actually play the smallest roles in, in body fat loss and metabolism. So um, this, is a, this is a study that I looked at when I was creating kind of a literature review for a long series of um, lectures in Italy. And if you've, if you've been with us for the last year or longer, you've heard me talk about this in the past, but have you guys ever seen those charts where they say, okay, here's how many calories you burn if you do blank. So if you walk for an hour, you'll, you know, your basal metabolic rate, which may be 75 calories an hour. Now, all of a sudden you're burning 300 calories an hour. And if you jog, it goes up to 600 calories an hour. And you can just, you can see that stair-stepping effect of intensity. Well, imagine doing an eight second sprint on a bike, like an assault bike, where it's just all out. It's like, go, and you've got to go as hard as you possibly can. You've probably seen guys do that uh, on the CrossFit games. And, and then you just, then you kind of slow it down for 12 seconds. And then you break back out for eight seconds as hard as you can. And you just keep doing that. Uh, in their study, they actually said you can get the same effect depending on your training level. If you just start with four or five minutes, gradually go up to 10, but eventually even at your best metabolic conditioning, 20 minutes is about where the impact tops out. But growth hormone, when you do this, increased up to a thousand percent, still up to an hour later, norepinephrine, epinephrine. These are the adrenal, you know, these are the hormones that when you start moving, uh, they are released and they are the hormones that unlock body fat cells. This is what takes body fat out of body fat cells to be used as energy. And even those, again, the greatest hormonal mediators we have for fat loss post high intensity interval training up, up to 1400%. This is why this study was so conclusive in exercise and exercise intensity 
being the greatest thing we can do from a hormonal impact perspective for body fat loss. Um, VO2 max, so just the amount of oxygen that, that your body uh, can utilize, you know, the, every, every blood cell, how much oxygen they can carry, your stroke volume, uh, the efficiency of your entire cardiac system. VO2 max increases up to 13% in two weeks of doing this kind of training and 41% in 12 to 24 weeks. That's massive. You talk about your basal metabolic rate being improved because your body is just more efficient. Uh, VO2 max, it, it within you know three to six months, all of a sudden being 41% improved. Uh, that's a, a big, big, big deal. And in this particular study, in, in comparing those people who were doing just diet uh, and, and moderate cardio to this kind of, of training, 48% reduction in fat compared to 18%, those just doing the steady state uh, uh, cardio. So, you know, diet being the same for each isocaloric study, just saying, let's do steady state walking, low intensity kind of work, moderate compared to this kind of high intensity, that's how much of a shift you get, all directly related to that hormonal response. So let's, let's turn toward testosterone for just a couple minutes, because again, we all want to think that this is the, the money load and a lot of the quote, anti-aging clinics out there certainly sell it as such. So here's a particular study looking at the effect of testosterone on body fat and lean mass. Um, and it's kind of interesting. I, I thought there were a, a couple points in this that, you know, I don't, I don't think they were trying to prove anything one way or the other, that would be bad science. But, uh, but I'm going to point out something here that should make you realize that, that testosterone may not be the, the ultimate panacea. So 82 obese men uh, of all ages, 18 to 70, um, average age 53, they, when you are obese, if you're categorized as obese and, and that's could be just 30 pounds above a, a normal BMI, Obviously, a lot of people in our country are closer to the 70 to 100 pound mark overweight. Um, the average obese man has about a third uh, reduction in the actual uh, testosterone levels to begin with. So that's interesting for this subset of people. You, you have to realize that you're, you're, already, you're already starting with a group that's low in testosterone. So then they gave them a thousand milligrams of testosterone a week, just for context, a normal starting point for TRT is about 200 milligrams. And with 200 milligrams, that even has an anabolic response. So a lot of people who are anti, or at least questioning TRT will say, you know, even if you give people the low entry dose of 200, that can be about five times the normal level a guy would be producing in that particular time of his life. You know, that could be, you know, that that's already a lot. So then you add five times that these guys should be having an almost bodybuilder PED performance enhancing drug kind of response. And they did a long-term study. So they, they started out in 10 weeks putting these guys on a very low energy diet, 640 calories. That's all they ate a day for 10 weeks. Then they went for 46 weeks on a maintenance diet. Interestingly, 1,340 calories. We often think we should be eating a lot more than that. Um, but in those first 10 weeks, the guys who got no testosterone compared to the guys who got this mega dose there was absolutely no change in fat loss between the two groups, no change whatsoever. Then you flash forward for the entire rest of the year, you know, what accounted um, amounted to more than a year long study, the placebo group lost 5.2 kilograms of fat and the TR2 group lost 8.1. So it's like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's a little bit more, right? I mean, 20, 30% more body fat loss, but in a, in a full year, taking a thousand milligrams of testosterone a week, clearly testosterone has very, very, very little effect for body fat loss. Um, I think for those people who are low, 
anecdotally with clients of mine who have taken it, there, there is some impact in how you feel in recovery and sleep and libido. I mean, there, there are definite impacts regaining some lean body mass. That's actually the, the greatest hormonal impact. But for fat loss, taking testosterone is not your game. That's not it whatsoever. So lastly, I want to talk about that. And I put this at the end because I wanted to make sure that it kind of sticks out in your mind. It's the first step in what happens hormonally with body fat loss and diet change. Uh, and, and because all of the research shows that the catecholamine hormones and exercise-induced hormonal response is the sledgehammer, that's what's going to give you the greatest results, you still can't underestimate the role of leptin and, and the axis of insulin and glucagon as, as a primary starting point for what we can do through diet. So exercise and training, absolutely, you know, that you know, intensity matters. That's going to drive everything. But you guys know leptin is released from body fat cells as a signaling hormone for hunger. So when we are, uh, when we're seeing reductions in leptin, we're seeing increases in hunger. So leptin is secreted to tell the brain, hey, we got enough here. We're good. That, that pizza is holding us over. You don't have to make this guy hungry anymore. So when we start declining in calorie intake, uh, you know, we get less and less leptin because now the body, you know, it, your body wants to be hungry. You want a signal for that. And you have a certain amount of body fat cells that, that are just always there. We're losing volume in those cells. So body fat levels are going down, but the amount of cells don't, doesn't change. And so what happens hormonally with, with a stable insulin level, changing leptin levels, uh, even ghrelin, which is released from the lining of the stomach to, to also kind of mediate hunger in that way, more of a, of a, you know, what's happening, you know, right there in the gut from a volumetric standpoint, uh, all of that starts widening this hunger gap. Because think of it evolutionarily, if you're getting less and less and less food over time, a calorie deficit becomes perpetual, your body needs to drive you toward hunger. But behaviorally, that puts us in a bad situation because we are the only species known that tries to lose body fat on purpose. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a paradox. Um, you know, I mean, bumblebees and whales and dolphins and squirrels don't run around saying, man, am I getting a little thicker in the middle? Should I, should I cut back on the acorns, you know, this week? Um, you know, evolution is there to drive us towards survival. And we are uh, exceeding a little too much in that area. We are, we are very good at survival right now. Um, uh, you've all Noah Hari, the great a history professor that's out there right now and does a lot of, of writing in, in the whole sense of anthropology. He said, this is the first time in human history that, that more people are dying from obesity instead of hunger. You know, we've almost cured, um, you know, aggressive, uh, you know, extreme poverty, but, but so, so this gap here, this widening hunger gap is something we have to contend with. And that's one of the biggest reasons we, we, we seek these strategies, you know, what kind of dieting is better? Where can you get more bang for your buck? Is intermittent fasting better? This carbs, keto, you know, we, we keep filtering all these things. If it was as easy as just saying, Hey, here's the best way to lose weight. Everybody go do it. And it was easy. You know, I'm going to pick the blue car instead of the red car. We wouldn't have the problem we do, but we, we are stuck with the fact that it is damn hard. It's painful. We have these, these hormonal fluctuations that will drive hunger to the point where you feel like you can't even stand it. And this is where we have to behaviorally decide what we're going to do to mitigate those symptoms. And so all the things you know, all the basics, if you could create like a top five or top 10 list of here are the things to do to diet successfully, we would always say, okay, make sure you drink enough water, make sure you're going to have sleep, make sure food quality, you know, due to the glycemic index and, and having enough protein, make sure that's all there. Uh, perhaps we need to look at meal timing and consistency. So I was just talking to a client before this call about, 
um, you know, you know, what is intermittent fasting and is it right? And, you know, what's all the science behind that? So some of that stuff does matter more behaviorally than it does hormonally. Matter of fact, if you just kind of compare diets and let's say everybody's losing a pound a week and these people are doing it through lower carbs, these people through lower fat, this, 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 you know, this is where insulin and glucagon, even though it's an important driver of this mechanism, it doesn't change a lot. It, it just matters most with energy intake in total. That's why they consider that this kind of a minor role where those catecholamines are still the, the heaviest. So in just a, a bit of summary, if you looked at that leptin insulin glucagon model that we just talked about, you know, there's solid impact. It's there. We, we have to abide by that. That's, that's why the entire metabolic switch and concept of metabolic positioning exists. It's why it's important. Uh, and if you're not doing that right, you're not going to lose body fat. So those dietary hormones are the gateway. Testosterone, again, eh, if you're low, maybe, definitely not going to help you lose a lot of body fat. Uh, HGH and the adrenals, the, you know, norepinephrine, epinephrine, that is the money load. But in the context of you having your diet in a place that matters, that, that is appropriate. In other words, if I start losing 600 extra calories a day through increasing my training intensity, and I just go eat 600 more calories, obviously that's going to have net zero impact. But this is where, when, when somebody asks, you know, Hey, should I, should I increase my intensity or duration of cardio a little bit, or should I just drop food? What should I do? more exercise, less food. What's going to help me, Joe? You know, context is important. We got to see where that person is. But generally, once your food intake is as low as you know is safe for sustainability, non-binging behavior, and so forth, then we just have to ratchet up that training intensity. And then you run into the problems of recovery and how long can you do this? How many times a week? So again, there's a finite limit but I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there. Um, and, and we can talk about some things as a group, some, some questions and so forth, but I'm going to, I'm going to stop the screen share here and then I'm going to pull back up the chat box. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to answer Stacy's questions first. Can you tell us more about the benefits of using glucose disposal agents? I'm not sure as supplements because that's what they call them that they're very effective. You know, glucose disposal is just simply the rate at which your body uses glucose and clears it out of your bloodstream. So if I'm sitting here and let's say my blood sugar level is 90 and for the next hour, I'm just going to be standing here. And because my body is slowly using what's in my bloodstream and that's being replenished by what's in my liver glycogen, my body's probably going to be pretty good at keeping it at 90. Guess what happens if I put on my tennis shoes and go run for 30 minutes? I dispose of that glucose because my energy requirements just went up and now I have to replace that. So guess where that glucose comes from? It comes from the liver, it comes from the muscle tissue until that's gone. And then where does that glucose come from next? From body fat being converted into glucose. So glucose disposal is what we should all want. I used the example of my dad a couple of days ago in our live daily chats. When I took him to Europe um, for a trip and you know he was a type one diabetic. Now, actually I should say type two, he, he was insulin dependent type two. And um, you know, his glucometer in the morning, the first day we were there wouldn't even read, you know, because it was just so high. He's just, you know, he was a, a you know, congestive heart failure, pacemaker, overweight guy his whole life. Um, well, not pacemakers whole life, but, but, you know, never an exerciser, never a healthy guy. So it took a day or two of walking around, you know, he's now, he's just walking with me. Like, you know, usually at home, he's just going to lay on the couch and watch TV. So he's eating healthy foods with me, good portions with me. We're on the go. And within a day or two, his blood sugar is 400 in the morning. Then within another day, it's 200. Then with another day, it's 100. Then all of a sudden, he's having to start reducing his insulin as metformin. And by the time we were done with that two-week trip, the guy was almost not a diabetic anymore. 
you know, just because of glucose disposal, you're actually using those energy substrates. And, and that whole cycle is, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, cleaning out your bloodstream. And, and he was in a state of, of gluconeogenesis. He's, he's using body and lipolysis. He's, he's using body fat as energy and, and his body's turning that into new glucose. So these, these glucose disposal agents, it's been a while since I've even looked at what they are. Um, I'm sure they have some trace minerals, like some B vitamins that are supposed to help your body use carbohydrates as energy. I'm sure they have some other things like maybe NO, you know, nitri nit 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 nitrous oxide. That's not right. What's, what's NO3? That's what the dentists use to <laughs> knock you out. Um, but anyway, you know, things like that, I think are, are marketed that way, but, um, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know if there's really any effect. I, I would actually have to see some research on that. So T3 is just a synthetic thyroid hormone. So instead of something that's going to nitrate, thank you, Kevin. I knew you'd jump on that. Um, so T3 is basically just supplementing thyroid hormone and your body can convert that to a usable T4 and, and you, you get a height, heightened metabolic effect. Uh, and that's why that's one of the reasons why all those competitors are dying and, and getting permanent heart damage. Uh, clenbuterol is, is, is kind of in the methamphetamine family. Like it's just, and there may be some direct thyroid, there, there may be something different. The reason it's not just called an amphetamine, um, but you can, you can take this and, and again, you're just going to, it's, it's almost like Adderall times 10, like you're going to take it. And then just standing there, all of a sudden you can feel your heartbeat just beating through your neck, your heart rate's 120, you're sweating. And, and a lot of really stupid coaches give it to really stupid competitors and in an effort to lose body fat. Um, it, it's so bizarre, right? Because you, you have seen non-performance enhanced drug using competitors get incredibly lean. I mean, you, you can lose weight with diet and exercise. You don't need these life ending ridiculous drugs. But, uh, but any, any more questions here? I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts and questions because, like I said, just the concept of testosterone or, or not, I mean, hormones, you know, is, is pretty wide. So, Stacy, you are unmuted. Right? Do you have any follow-up questions to that? Um, so, because <laughs> somebody called me and asked me about um, glucose disposal agents, and they asked me about these two different supplements. And, you know, like supplements are so... Um, you know, they don't have to follow, they just, they don't have to follow really any guidelines. Right. Right. Um, so this person's like, you know, I looked at the label and this one, it looks like it has the same thing as this other one. And so I just like Googled, Googled it. And I like have this, literally this article that compares in all the different brands and the active ingredients that they say that they have that and and how that those ingredients might theoretically work in the supplement world. <clears throat> so I just I didn't we've never talked about that like we I don't you know so I just wondered what your thoughts were on that as whether or not they work and then <clears throat> why do people get tired after a high high, high carb meal? Uh, because of the insulin and, and serotonin, it, it's almost like the, the tryptophan effect, you know, we're getting close to Thanksgiving. So everybody talks about the tryptophan in Turkey. So your body, when, when you have a, a big food bolus, you, you eat a big meal. Now blood has to be shunted away from your muscular system to your digestive core for digestion and assimilation of those nutrients. It doesn't work very well if you're running a marathon you know, digestion. So you have the two divisions of your nervous system, your sympathetic and parasympathetic. So your sympathetic is action. It's adrenaline, go, go, go. And then the parasympathetic is sleep, rest, digest. And so when, uh, when you eat that meal, it's one reason why you get that release of serotonin in your brain, which is to relax you. You feel sated that way. And it also makes you tired. So you want to sit down. And so your parasympathetic nervous system has a chance to digest that food. That's one of the reasons why a lot of people, as soon as they start eating well, you know, they just say, oh my gosh, I've got so much energy now, so much energy. 
it's because you're not just putting yourself in that carb coma, you know, every three hours eating a thousand calorie meal. But I will, you know, one of the things that you, you hit it perfectly when you said, I got this sheet online shows all the different companies with all the different ingredients and what they may do physiologically. That's, that's what the FDA does not require with supplementation. You, as long as you make a claim, this doesn't diagnose, treat, or cure any disease, and these supplements may have this effect, you're going to go. Go make a million bucks. Capitalism, baby. But, you know, it doesn't, doesn't mean it works. It, you know, it, you don't have to prove it works. There can be no studies on your product, and you're just, you know, selling it based on hype. So there, there, there are things like, like, let's say, chromium as a trace mineral it does have an effect on glucose disposal. And so if you were taking one of these glucose disposal agents, I know it would have some vitamin Bs in it. I know it have chromium uh, piclinate and maybe some other things. And you may feel an effect, you may. One of the supplements I created in my supplement company, um, which ironically I called C4 and then Cellucor came out with their C4. Um, but I had four ingredients in it and, and they were four things. I had taken a supplement by this major pharmaceutical company and I just noticed whenever I took it, I would sweat so much more and just so much sooner in my cardio. And so I was looking at the ingredients. One of them was some kind of a, an herbal thing, Rodeo something. Um, and I thought, man, I don't know, like there's no studies on this supplement, but these elements of it are definitely noted to have these effects. So I asked my supplement manufacturer, like just to let's, let's make our own, let's try and create it. Let's do some bench samples. And I mean, that particular product caffeine free, I had clients so hooked on that for the same reason. They would say, man, if I don't take C4 or I do like such a difference, I feel like my training is 50% better uh, the rest of the day, I don't feel as much hunger. And then I chickened out Stacy because I'm like, I'm just doing the same thing. I blame everybody else for doing. I'm just throwing a bunch of shit in a bottle. That's never been studied together from these sources and these amounts. And, you know, I, I hope it works, seems to work, but because I can't pay the millions of dollars for clinical trials on my own supplement, I decided yeah, I'm just going to stop it. Well, that's because you have a moral compass. <laughs> well, uh, it, it was tempting. I mean, that was a great supplement that seemed to work really well. But, but yeah, that, those are all the things we take. You know, there are other countries in Europe, like in Norway, you can't buy this kind of stuff because they will not even put it on the market unless there are FDA level clinical trials, even for a vitamin, even for, you know, anything you put in a bottle and sell so I've got clients in the Nordic states who are like, yeah, we can't even buy glutamine, you know, because you know, just the government won't let it because it's not a proven supplement. So pros and cons, you know, we, we have a little more freedom over here, which is great sometimes, but it can also lead to our demise. So one more thing, I had some notes here that I wanted to uh, introduce if we had time, you know, we, we do talk a lot about carbs versus fat and keto versus flexible dieting and these kind of things uh, from time to time. And it was interesting as just a caveat to the testosterone studies that a lot of people still out there say that, man, you have to have more fat in your diet because testosterone is a cholesterol derived hormone. So you got to have fat in your diet. Well, we already know if you're obese, the more body fat you have, the less testosterone you're going to have. And the higher your fat intake, the less testosterone you're going to have. But also, if your fat intake gets too low, your testosterone goes down. So there's almost this homeostatic sweet spot. And the numbers they said is that when you get your fat intake above 35 to 40% of calories, you know, testosterone will start going down in your body. When you get your fat intake below about 15% of calories, then your testosterone starts to go down. So even though testosterone is a minor player in fat loss, it is certainly a higher player in lean body mass retention. So, so I thought that was at least an important note. Uh, 
And, and another thing that we talked about more in the nutrition coaching global mastermind this week was on the female side with menstruation and amenorrhea and a lot of people who diet for a long time, especially if they get under their metabolic set point, you know, they'll, they'll go into an amenorrheic state and, and how do we control that? And, and that is mostly determined and mitigated by your total calorie intake just as much as it is your body fat percentage. So for example, I have two clients right now who came to me post contest. So their body fat was way into the single digits and they were amenorrheic. You know, they had stopped having their period and, you know, it was maybe a year or so. And for one of these women, it was kind of chronic. And so there are some coaches who would say, well, we just have to get your body fat way up. Like, let's just get you fat, so to speak. And then your, your period will come back. Well, with these two women, I said, no, that's not the goal. Let's make sure your fat intake is adequate, but let's make sure your calorie intake is adequate. Let's stop overtraining, stop doing cardio an hour every day because you're in the off season now. So we get your calorie expenditure down. And within a couple months, these women, you know, even, even though their body fat level had not gone up at all, they met one of them even lost. One of them's lost about three or four pounds in her off season in the, the last five or so months working with me, they, they regain total menstrual function. And the reason that can be important is just for fertility. Uh, disruption of your menstrual cycle is primarily because your luteal phase is shortened and disrupted. So uh, the, the part of menstruation where your body is, is thickening the uterine lining and getting ready for ovulation, your body just says, well, wait a second, we're in such a low calorie space here. We don't have, we don't have what it takes to support another life. So your body just shuts that whole system down to protect you and a potential baby. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, that's also not necessarily as dependent on hormones related to fat intake, but just total calorie intake and, and making sure you're not overtraining. Um, can we just take leptin? I think this is a, this is an interesting question. Um, I don't think it's something that can be done at this point, but I want to say in the last year or two, I have heard that that may be around the corner. Um, you know, some things just can't be taken because it can't pass through the, the gut um, easily. So it's, you know, I don't know if it's even something could be injected. Some things have a short half-life. Some things are just toxic. Some things are dangerous. So um, that was always a very logical question. And, and I feel like that's one of the things that could be on the horizon. But even more than that, Stacy is probably just going to be some genetic engineering where we have something that just changes the way certain genes in our body metabolize carbs and fat and so forth. Um, number one, it just depends on what's going to be the safest. And number two, it's going to be wherever the biggest profit margins are for big pharma. You know, that's going to dictate what gets on the market. Ooh, I need to look at that study I told you about. Remember the new definition, the re of obesity. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. By, by reclassifying that code, it gives pharmaceutical companies a way to well, yeah, reclassifying it as a chronic disease is yeah. was the key instead of just a behavioral thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Any uh, any other questions? If I if I could summarize this, just remember, guys, the. Hormones. If you just say, man, what, you know, I, I'm worried about my hormonal balance. What can I do to make sure I've got the right level of the right hormones to keep myself healthy and to lose body fat the easiest? It's, it's understanding that metabolic switch and metabolic positioning so that your leptin and insulin hunger gap is manageable. You know, you, you all know you can hit a certain level of food intake and a certain level of cadence with body fat loss that's comfortable. I mean, it's, it's never great. You're still in a calorie deficit, but you go too far in one direction and it's fucking miserable. Like then all of a sudden you're, you're lethargic. You have no energy. You're grouchy. You're starving all day. Like that's a step too far. You've got to make sure that that initial hunger access and, and metabolic switch is where it can be and very sustainable. Then, like we said, 
probably just don't even worry about the androgens unless you're just super low. Even that, I will say, even the numbers, like if you, if you get your testosterone tested and for your level as a male, your age group, the, the, you're supposed to be between, let's say 400 and 700 nanograms per deciliter for a female, maybe 15 to 25. And you say, oh my gosh, I'm lower. I'm at the low end. Well, supplementing more, as we saw in this study, doesn't necessarily have any effect. And yet it can also cause some other problems with, with red blood cells and so forth. So um, it, it's something to really consider if, you, if you're going to go down that road, really dig deep. Uh, Eric Helms noted a study that I thought was pretty profound in that 85% um, of men right now that start TRT, within a year, they have voluntarily stopped it because it's just not giving them the effect that they thought it would. Everybody thinks they're going to turn into 16-year-olds again. And it's like, wait a second, I'm paying a thousand bucks a month for this and I'm really not seeing any difference even though they may have seen their number go from 400 nanograms per deciliter to 800. It's like, wow, it's doubled. I should feel like, you know, Captain America here and it's just not happening. So, so your whole metabolic switch, dietary intake, make sure your, your thyroid hormone is okay. Make sure your androgens are okay. Not that big of a factor, but man, do you have an opportunity to really lose body fat faster by, by, stimulating norepinephrine, epinephrine, and cortisol by intensity of training. Uh, remember that study, 48, same diet, 48% fat loss compared to 18%. So there's Stacy. There you go. With uh, leptin cannot be taken in a pill, cannot be absorbed in bloodstream. Oh, so metformin is kind of a, giving you the same effect. So that's what its job is. So there you go. I knew there had to be a reason. And it's usually that some common obese people. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking it up on clinicaltrials.gov. Okay. There's our pharmaceutical key point person there, Stacy. 